but it's a completely other thing and more magnificent thing, I would argue, that the God of the universe comes to you and me who might as well be scraping the gum off the bottom of the bench and say to us, I put my name on you. I bring you on to my team. Welcome to Tell Podcasts. You're listening to encouraging words from Pastor Dan, bringing you truth and peace through God's Word. In this episode, we explore what it means to be called God's own and understand the unique blessings that His grace provides. Think, evaluate, learn, lead. T-E-L-L. Tell. Here's Pastor Dan with God Put His Name On You. Thanks for listening. I'll never forget that young man's face. He came up to me with such excitement. I didn't even know him. He was a stranger, but he had to tell me the good news. You see, I was serving as a marshal on the 16th hole for the World Golf Championship this past March in Austin at the country club, Austin Country Club. And uh, <clears throat> part of that job as a marshal is to make sure that people stay behind the ropes. You might have seen these people on TV before. But there were famous golfers there, uh, the top 60 in the world. They're competing head-to-head -head in a different format. Um, and the neat thing about being a marshal is you're inside the ropes, and so you get to hear conversations sometimes between caddies and the golfer, and you get to, if the golfer approaches you, interact with them. And, um, uh, and one of the most exciting things was the time, really not when I interacted with a player, all the interactions, the best one was this. The young man that came up to me, maybe 13, 14 years old, wearing a jersey that had the World Golf Championship logo on it, and he was holding not one of these, he was holding a standard. He was a standard bearer. And he had his hat signed by a couple golfers. Uh, he came up to me and he said in a break between the action, he said, you'll never believe this. But this morning... I was around the putting green, just asking for autographs from the players as they came off. And Harold Varner III, or HV3 as he's known, came up to me. He signed my hat. Do you see it? And then he said this. He asked me to be his standard bearer for the whole day. In other words, the professional golfer came up to this young man that just wanted an autograph and asked him, to be his standard bearer and hold his name up as they walked around the course. And not only could he observe the golfer, but he would be and play, in a way, an integral role in, uh, in showing the world the score of his favorite player. And he got to follow him for three hours, standing about 20 yards behind one of his favorite players. I thought that was pretty cool. And I didn't even ask him to tell me the story. He had to come up to me. He had to find somebody to tell this great story. And now I'm sharing it with you. It's one thing to have one of your favorite athletes, professional athletes, ask you to be a part of their match. But it's a completely other thing. And more magnificent thing, I would argue, that the God of the universe comes to you and me 
who might as well be scraping the gum off the bottom of the bench and say to us, I put my name on you. I bring you on to my team, even though it's not earned, even though it's not deserved. And it's not just a privilege to follow the God of the universe around on a, on a golf course for three hours, but for the God of the universe to say, although you don't deserve it, although you haven't earned it, I'm giving you heaven, and my name is on you. Today, from, Rome, uh, from Numbers chapter 6, we're going to learn what it means that God puts his name on you and me. And uh, this is what's happening uh, in, in this part of the Bible. God's people in the Old Testament, about 1,400 years before Jesus, had been slaves in Egypt. They were really a peanut nation. They're called the Israelites. They had no king. They had no power. They were enslaved. And yet God brought them and chose them and said, I'm going to bring you up out of Egypt, which he did. He rescued them from the Egyptians. And then he says, I have a promised land set aside for you. A land flowing with milk and honey, and it's yours, and I'm giving it to you. However, the people aren't grateful, even for the recent rescue that they had from Egypt, and they rebel against God, and their leader, Moses, is, 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 is trying to pastor them and bring them back to God again and again. And as flawed as Moses was, the people, they were, they were immature spiritually. And so God says, I'm going to establish a nation, and I will be the one. That will be your leader. I will be the one that puts my name on you because you cannot do this yourself. In Numbers, which is kind of a misnomer. Yes, the, in, in, the, in later church history, the book was named Numbers, and it kind of is a boring name. You might not just say, I, I want to read the book of Numbers and read a bunch of statistics and read a bunch of lists of people that I can't pronounce their names. The, the, the name in the Jewish the Jewish uh, teachings, because the Jews named these books differently than, than later people did, they called it In the Wilderness, which is exactly what this book is about. God's people are in the wilderness, and they will be for 39 years, and God lays out for them, this is how the government should work. These are the rules. This is how society will work. These are the rules. This is how you should should live morally. These are the Ten Commandments. These are the rules. And then he says this. He says to Moses, tell Aaron, which is Moses' brother, and all of his sons that they will be the priestly group. They're going to be the pastor group. There's going to be all these clans, and this clan called the Levites are going to be the pastors. They're going to be the priests that uh, perform worship, sacrifice, atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people, and then he says, and at the end of the worship service, Moses, tell the priests to put this benediction, this blessing on the people. And he says, and when they do that, I will put my name on them. They will see that I am their God and they are my people. And he says this, next slide. So they, the priests, will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. And this is the full reading. That's, <clears throat> that's the, at the end of the reading, and this is the full reading now. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. Sound familiar? 
Maybe you hear it every other time, the pastor at the end of the service is ending the service. <clears throat> what is a blessing? What is a benediction? Is it the time that you start saying to, you know, your, your spouse, okay, let's get the, the purse ready. Let's get, the, let's get up, let's get the coffee cup, and let's get ready to go. No, 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 no. A blessing is far more than that. A blessing is far more than that. No. In the Old Testament, you've got to understand, there's this law of primogeniture. And it was very important that a blessing would be handed down from a father to a son, especially the firstborn son. That's why you have these stories like Jacob and Esau. You remember that story? The firstborn son in the laws of primogeniture say this, that the firstborn son will receive the main estate from the father. And that was very important because the father, if you think about it, would spend the most time with the firstborn son. The, the firstborn son, to his advantage, would just would have the most time to learn from the father and would have the most responsibility. And so he would receive the bulk of the inheritance. Certainly the other sons would, and daughters would get an inheritance, but it wasn't the same as having the blessing, having the full support and endorsement of the father. And so when God promised that he was going to reverse this rule in the, in the life of Jacob and Esau, and the second one would receive the bulk, and the first one wouldn't, Esau... There was strife in the family, and there was unbelief on both sides, wasn't there? On the one hand, God had promised the second son would get the bulk of the estate, the blessing, and yet <clears throat> Jacob, the father, didn't believe it, and he favored his son Esau. And even though Jacob was promised the bulk of the estate, he was acting his whole life as if he wasn't going to get it. And so you have strife between brothers, right? And you have deception. And Jacob, Jacob wanting the approval of his father, Jacob wanting the love and affirmation of his father, and so he would swindle his brother out of the blessing, right? With a, with a pot of stew at one point. And Rebecca doesn't do any better. The mother, she takes Jacob's side. And, and she schemes against the old father in his old age, blind, cannot see, can hardly smell. And and Rebecca and Jacob, because Jacob so dearly wants the affirmation, he just wants to hear his father say, I give you my blessing. Puts on skin like, his, like animal skin to feel like his brother goes in and, 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 and deceives his blind father. Who does that? People who are desperate for blessing. That's how important a blessing was for people, especially in the Old Testament. That's how important it was for Jacob. And you and I aren't so different. This morning, we're going to look at what a blessing is, why we would desire to have affirmation from outside of ourselves. Number one, what is a blessing? Number two, how do we receive that blessing from God? And number three, how that blessing changes us, how it transforms us, what it gives us, how it empowers us in this world because we know where we're going. So those are the three places we're going. Number one, what is a blessing? You can put it up on the screen. Number two, we're going to look at how we receive that blessing, and number three, how it changes us. What is a blessing? It's much more. We look for affirmation from outside of ourselves. We look for affirmation from other people. Many people will look for affirmation in different ways. I look for affirmation from my work. Am I getting a bonus? <clears throat> Am I looking uh, for affirmation through a relationship? Am I 
Am I, even, even through an intimate relationship, am I giving myself to somebody intimately because I want to have them affirm me? But in a blessing, God is saying this, I'm putting my blessing on you and I'm giving you everything that you need for life. There's nothing that you have today that I haven't given you. Martin Luther, the church reformer in the 16th century, he said it this way. He says, I believe that God gave me, he made me and every creature, and that he gave me my body and soul, my eyes and ears and all my members, my mind and all my abilities. And I believe that he still preserves me, does this sound familiar? By richly and daily providing clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, if you have them, spouse and children, land, cattle, and all that I own and all that I need to keep my body in life. And by defending me against all danger and guarding and protecting me from all evil. All this he does only because I am, he is my good and merciful Father in heaven and not because I have earned or deserved it. For all this I ought to thank and praise to serve and obey him. And any Lutheran that has gone through a catech catechism class says, this is most certainly true. By the way, if, if you're new to Lutheranism, we have to find the longer, harder way to say amen. <laughs> we are abundantly blessed. Did you hear the list that Martin Luther had in his commentary on the first article? We are blessed. And here's the interesting thing. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that it's not just on the believers that God puts this general blessing, but he gives general blessings to unbelievers. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, that God makes the sun rise for the evil and the good people, and he pours down rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And even in the Psalms, you have the believers complaining that God is blessing unbelievers. Why is he doing this? He's, he's the God of full and abundant love and grace, and he's even showing unbelievers that don't put their faith in him that he's a good and gracious God, that he fills up their storehouses so that they would seek him. So how much more would we as believers, how much more are we condemned when we complain about what God hasn't given us? There's a heart problem going on that we're falling more in love with the blessings and we've ignored the relationship with the blesser, which is really the blessing that God wants to give us. It's not the things, but there's a heart problem because there's a broken relationship with the blesser. Which brings us to point number two. How do we really receive the blessing from God? And what is that blessing? Because we know that the things of this world, we can fill up <laughs> storage containers, but when we leave this world, that's all staying here. We're leaving it behind. What's the real relationship? What's the real blessing and how do we receive it? Well, the blessing goes on. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Imagine for a moment that uh, you're invited to your favorite niece's wedding, okay? Um, this, she's uh, just so dear to you. She's so, she, she lived with your family for those years in college, and now she's doing a great job in her career. She's met a a handsome, successful young man, and you're so happy for the family, but they live far away now that they're getting married, and you're invited to the wedding. You receive the invitation. You say, you mark it on the calendar. I'm not going to miss it. I love my niece, and I love that she's starting a new family, and I, want, I need to be there. 
And so you make a commitment with your work to be away from work. You take vacation time. You make a financial investment. You buy tickets for your whole family to go and to be at her special event. And there at the special event, the, 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 the wedding chapel is packed with people. And there you are at your niece's wedding. You're in her presence. You're, you're in the presence of the bride and the groom. And you go throughout the ceremony. You haven't talked to her. You haven't, you haven't, you haven't been able to go face-to-face with her. But then you get to the reception. And what happens? Well, in America, we have this tradition where they walk in and everybody stands up and cheers. And there she is. She's in your presence, right? Your beloved niece and her new husband. And they sit down at the, at the place of honor high up above everybody else. Isn't that awkward if you've ever been in that spot? <laughs> Away from all the people you love, but the room is packed and you're sitting across the table with some strangers and also some familiar faces. Are you there with your niece in that wedding? Are you there with your niece so far at that wedding? No, not really. Her face hasn't shined on you. You haven't been able to say to her how much you love her, to say how much that you're praying for them, to say how beautiful the wedding is, how beautiful her dress is. You haven't had that close contact. You haven't seen her face to face. It's not until that moment, maybe 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the evening, when the couple goes table to table and she finally says, how are you? And you get to say, you are so beautiful. And this is what I'm feeling, and this is what I'm thinking, and, 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 I, and I'm praying for you, and, and, and where are you going for the honeymoon? Now there's that intimacy, that face-to-face relationship. Not just in the general room, but now you're with that person. Many people go through life, and I would argue even Christians, who, who call themselves Christians, go through life with this general idea about God. That they're in the room with God. And that God is there and that he's giving them blessings and they have some good karma going on with God. You might hear people say, God and I, we have our thing going on, right? But do you really know God? You're in the room with him and you've received his blessings. How can you know that you're face-to-face with God? How can you know that he is your father, that he is your family, that he is shining his gracious face on you? Or are you going through life, even believers do this, trying to earn his favor so that everything that you do, you feel like you're trying to have his, turn face, his face turned towards you. I'm doing good things. I'm going to church. I'm going to Sunday school. I'm, I'm serving in the... And you're saying, now God will, will love me. No. How, how do you know? How do any of us know? Unless God would come to you and me at our table, not just at the banquet hall, high above us, it was only until he came down and sat with us at our table that we could get to know God and what he was all about. Moses would be shocked to hear this. I'm supposed to tell the priests to tell the people God's face is with them? Because just earlier in the book of Exodus, Moses was up on the mountain with God. Remember the thunder and the cloud and the powerful presence of God. And Moses said to God, now show me your face. Show me your face, he said. And what did God say back to him? 
No. No one can see my face and live. And Moses, you should know that better than anybody else because I am a holy God and you're a sinful people. My ways are so much higher than your ways. It's, if, if, if you would see my face, God said, it would, be, it would evaporate you. It's like fire evaporating water or wire, water dousing out fire. These two don't mix. People, sinful people and a holy God, they don't, they don't go together. But now Moses is coming with the instruction of God to the priest and saying, put my name on the people because my name is this. I'm turning my face towards the people. The people will see my face. Moses had to think to himself, and he was processing this, I'm sure, as well, that this blessing would come at the end of the service, at the end of the worship. Before the blessing came a sacrifice. Before the blessing came blood. Before the moment when the priests would come and turn to the people and say, and now God's face is shining on you, there would be a sacrifice. It was just a picture, just a picture of what was to come. When God came down to you and me and he showed us his face, not high in a mountain with thunder and clouds, the one who showed his face first to some shepherds in a manger, the one who showed his face whose mouth opened up, and when he opened up his mouth, he spoke words of authority. He spoke words from God about how pure God is, and yet from the same mouth forgave sins. God showed us his face. He showed us his face when he opened his mouth, and the powerful words that came from his mouth raised the dead, brought families back together. He showed us his face when... He allowed his face to be slapped, hit, crown of thorns put on his face and blood running down. He showed us his face by not opening up his mouth when false accusations came against him. He showed us his face when he opened his mouth on that cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 27. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was saying this, Father, from eternity you and I have had a relationship, but in this moment, when darkness is over the whole land, in this moment, when I'm hanging here on this cross, God, the Father, turned his face away from his only son, his innocent son, because he was suffering not just the nails through his hand, but he was suffering eternal damnation for you and me. And that's what it means to have God's face turned away from you. That's hell that Jesus went through for you and for me. But here's the beauty. <laughs> Years before, in this blessing, God was promising his people that his face shines on them. Not through the sacrifice of animals, but Moses could only wonder what you and I see to get today. The high priests that he trained are nothing compared to the high priest that gave his life on the cross so that when God turned his face away from your Savior and mine, Jesus Christ, 
That meant that God will never turn his face away from you and me. As sinful as we are, he made the perfect sacrifice on the cross. It was all building up to this fact that the face of Jesus is the perfect high priest, the perfect sacrifice. The sacrifices that end all sacrifice so that these words that you hear are truer than ever for a New Testament believer. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews, he says this. He says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You and me. That's our new identity. That's who we are, which brings us to point number three. We know what a general blessing is. We know how we now receive the true blessing from God that, that brings us into relationship with him through Jesus on the cross, through the gifts of baptism that ties us to the cross by the power of God's word. <laughs> Even this morning we'll have that blessing reaffirmed through the Lord's Supper as we take his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. But you do not leave the cross or, or God's means of grace the same. You leave forgiven and you leave with a, an identity. The identity that God puts his name on you and me and we go out into our community, into our world. And we have something inside of us that will equip us. And that's where this last part of this blessing comes in. Read it with me. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. You are peace agents in this world because peace is what you've received. You don't live underneath the old covenant, the law that, that, that says do this and then you're holy. You live under the covenant that says Jesus is your holiness. Jesus is your high priest and now you are forgiven and free. You have peace. A couple years ago, 2017, there was an article in Forbes magazine by Liz Ryan. She's uh, a former uh, senior vice president at a Fortune 500 company, <clears throat> and uh, she wrote this article called 10 Unmistakable Signs of a Fear-Based Workplace. I won't read all 10, but here are a couple highlights. In a fear-based workplace, everyone is focused on their daily goals. They have to be because if they miss a goal, they could lose their job. You won't get collaboration or innovation out of people who are scared to death. Two, in a fear-based culture, managers and HR specialists uh, specialize in assigning work, measuring results, punishing infractions, and maintaining order. In a fear-based company, employees wonder whether they'll still have a job next week. A great performance review or an on-the-job triumph does not guarantee anyone another week of employment. People work under a cloud of fear and suspicion. Ten, in a fear-based environment, the hardest thing to do is to stay truly human. I see some of you smiling. I'm not, telling you, I'm not giving you this to take to your workplace next week and give to your manager, but maybe you've lived underneath these circumstances before. High pressure, and if you mess up, you're gone. That's, is that the relationship that you have with God? No. With his name on you, you live with peace. In fact, that's why God loves you so much is because you have messed up so many times, but it's not a relationship that you have with God any longer that is a relationship of fear. So why are you living in fear? 
You live in a father-son relationship, a father-daughter relationship, and when somebody, if you're a father or mother, if your child has gone astray, does that make you love them less or love them more? More. In fact, when the child goes astray, you pursue them more, you give them more attention, you give them more time. Even if the other children are doing okay, your heart goes out to them even more. You live in a, a peace-blessed state with your father. So now you, as one who is uh, in the family of God with God's name on you, you don't live in a work-based relationship. You live in a grace-based relationship, which means you can be a blessing to others without fear. Romans chapter 12, verse 14 says this, Now as a forgiven child of God, I'm going to live this way. Let's read it together. Bless those who persecute you, Bless and do not curse. Going back into your communities this week, to your homes, to your workplaces, to your schools, even those people that are not loving you back, because you're tied into the family of God, you're a blessing to them. How can you be a blessing to them? How will you be a blessing to them? That's what you're made to be. Regardless of whether they're Loving back to you, whether they're blessing you back. Bless those who curse you because you live under God's blessing. 2 Timothy 1.7 says this about having God's name on us and the spirit of God in us. Let's read it together. The spirit God gives us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. You're facing temptation this week. You have God's name on you. You know that that temptation is coming your way and the Bible says the devil's like a roaring lion looking to devour you, but you say, no, I have God's name on me. I don't live in weakness. I live in his power. I don't live in timidity. I'm going to take on this temptation with my Savior Jesus who had his face, the face of God turned against him so that I can stand up with power and love and self-discipline to say no to temptation. The gospel changes everything. You know where you're going, heaven, so you know that Jesus is with you in the fight today. This past week, in fact, Friday, I was in the fellowship hour with my students. It's an hour every week or two that we spend together talking. We had people from about 10 different countries all in one room, and the topic of discussion was, what does your name mean? What's your name? And I told them my name, my great-grandfather came over from Finland, Leitinen is the name, and he told my grandfather, although it's kind of murky and questionable about the meaning of the name, he says that the name means outside the city gates, Leitinen, outside the city gates, which means, A, we were this battling tribe that was overtaking cities time and time again, or B, we were the outcasts of the city that brought nothing to society. Uh, I like to believe the, fir- the former. Uh, but one, one student from Cape Town, South Africa, Joseph is his English name, he says this. He says, my father gave me my name, his African name. He says, he named me Kamujia. Kamujia. I said, what does Kamujia mean? Kamujia means walking with my father on the road. Because as a little boy, that's what he did. He was always walking on the road with his father, Kamujia. 
And I said, Joseph, thank you. I was looking for a close to my sermon. His father put his name on him because he walked on the road with his father. You get it. What's better than holding a standard for three hours on a golf course? God has put you on his side and said, walk on the road with me. My name is on you. Walking on the road with your father amidst all the temptations, amidst all the attacks, he puts his name on you through his son. He turned his face against his son so that he, can, he will never turn his face against you. With that assurance, live with God's name on you like he's promised. Amen. Thanks again for listening to Tell Podcasts. Tell's mission is simple, teaching you the real gospel so you can teach others. Remember, truth brings peace. For more about Tell, visit us on Facebook or at tellnetwork.org.